Fabianism and the Empire, a manifesto by the Fabian Society, by Bernard Shaw. This is an adult brain audiobook production, read by Graham Dunlop. Editor's Preface As the word editor is not a term of precision, it is necessary to explain that it means, in this instance, only the draftsmen employed by the 800 members of the Fabian Society to produce their election manifesto. The Society is alive to the importance of making its utterances readable, and this can only be done by leaving the manner of their expression to a literary expert and confining its dictation to the matter to be expressed. Further, it will be understood that the greatest common measure of the opinions of 800 persons is not the same as the opinion of every individual member and that on certain points a wholly dissentient minority has been small enough to submit to being voted down. For example, some members regard the South African expedition as a foreseen and deliberate act on the part of the government, and of these some consider it a political crime, and others a justifiable stroke of imperial statesmanship. Again, on the point of army reform, Many members disapprove so strongly of war that they desire it to be understood that they endorse the pages which follow on that subject only as a Tolstoyan opponent of our criminal system might nevertheless provisionally advocate prison reform, or as a vegetarian might advocate municipal abattoirs. There are Fabian teetotalers, too, who refuse to say anything more for the municipal public house than to admit, doubtfully and reluctantly, that it is a more controllable evil than a brewer's tide house, and will not go even so far as that without an explicit affirmation that a more excellent way is not to have drink shops of any sort. All reservations made, however, it may be taken that what is said in this manifesto is what the great majority of the members of the Fabian Society desire to have said at the present moment. It must not be inferred from the restriction of the manifesto to the general lines of the reforms advocated that these have been but superficially considered. Our allusion to the drink question, for instance, clearly does not exhaust it, since a considerable interval of regulation of private enterprise lies between us and complete municipalization, but the tracts prepared by Mr. Edward Pease and already issued by the Society supply the lacking proposals. Again, the inevitableness of the minimum wage, which is no mere theoretic remedy, but the irresistible conclusion from a century of labor organization has come out in the course of a unique investigation, the most elaborate and severe yet undertaken by individual Fabians, by Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Webb. It is recorded in their volumes entitled The History of Trade Unionism and Industrial Democracy. The suggestion as to the provision of a militia by raising the half-time age was first mooted by them in a letter to the Times last year. The important proposals as to the consular service are the outcome of a series of discussions initiated by Mr. S. G. Hobson, who was the first Fabian to see the value as an illustration of the need for state organization of foreign trade, of the contrast between the imbecility and paralysis of English commercial diplomacy in the valley of the Yangtze, and the victorious alertness and efficiency of Russia. As to municipal trading, those who are not yet alive to the fact that we are in the throes of a struggle, quite as important as the South African one, between the new local authorities representing the citizenship of England and the company promoters for the control of our common life industries, 
we'll find in the Fabian tract on the economics of direct employment and that on the growth of monopoly by Mr. H. W. McCrosty, a mass of facts which cannot be detailed in an election manifesto. The elector who votes in ignorance of these facts will vote on assumptions which, though they are unfortunately still the prevalent assumptions of our educated classes, have long ceased to have any relation to contemporary reality. For many valuable amendments and certain chastising criticisms, I am indebted to several members of the society. But those named above, with Mr. Gilbert Slater, have contributed as well as criticized. One of the reasons for issuing this manifesto in the form of a shilling book is that the custom of the society, which is to sell for a penny a quantity of literary matter and political and statistical information, which could not be commercially produced and sold for less than half a crown, has resulted in an undue specialization of its market. The richer classes in England read nothing but what their booksellers sell, and booksellers cannot afford to sell penny pamphlets. It is one of the oddities of our competitive system that, out of the multitude of useful things that are sold for a penny, the millionaire can only obtain the penny stamp and the penny newspaper. If he wants the penny Fabian tract, he must either join one of the political or social organizations by which such wares are distributed, and their articles of faith are seldom such as conscientious millionaire can subscribe, or else the society must come to his rescue by charging him at least a shilling. It does so in this instance with many apologies for the smallness of the sum, which is nevertheless an exclusive one how exclusive the reader will best appreciate after a reference to our facts for socialists. Facts which unfortunately remain facts from addition to addition, in spite of our 16 years struggle to awaken social compunction concerning them. G. B. S. Part 1. Fabianism and the Empire. Introductory. The forthcoming general election will turn, we are told, mainly on the popularity of imperialism. If this be so, it is important that voters should make up their minds what imperialism means. If it is a mere catchword, vaguely denoting our insular self-conceit, then its victory at a general election would be a grave symptom of national infatuation. But if it means a well-considered policy to be pursued by a commonwealth of the communities flying the British flag, then it is a worthy and weighty an issue as an election could turn on. Only, in that case, we must ask for a clear statement of the questions which have been considered and the solutions proposed for them. So far, no such statement has been made. The pressure of war, far from changing our parliamentarians into statesmen, has only freshened the stale levities of partisanship by an outbreak of boyish excitement and an occasional flush of indignation that is, for once, not a pretense to be dropped the moment the speaker leaves the platform. Thus, when opponents of the government's policy have had their windows broken, the leader of the House of Commons has naively blurted out the feeling of the government that it served them right. The colonial secretary has publicly threatened France with war because the tone of some of the French comic papers is disrespectful to the British Empire. This was shortly after Punch had caricatured the French nation and Major Marchland as an organ grinder with a monkey. All this may be natural enough, but it is not imperial statesmanship. As to the opposition, it is divided into three sections. 
Two of them are anxious to shoo that they agree with the government in everything except their desire to have a turn in office and the selection of the next prime minister. The third, though its intellectual honesty stands out well in the general parliamentary dearth of that quality, still clings to the fixed frontier ideals of individualist republicanism, non-interference and nationalism, long since demonstrated both by experience and theory to be inapplicable to our present situation. It is possible to respect the tenacity and courage of these sturdy gentlemen, just as it is possible to respect the tenacity and courage of President Kruger. But it is not possible to conduct the British Empire, or even, as we have seen, a little African Republic, on their principles. The problem before us is how the world can be ordered by great powers of practically international extent, arrived at a degree of internal industrial and political development far beyond the primitive political economy of the founders of the United States and the Anti-Corn Law League. The partition of the greater part of the globe among such powers is, as a matter of fact that must be faced, approvingly or deploringly, not only a question of time, and whether England is to be the center and nucleus of one of those great powers of the future, or to be cast off by its colonies, ousted from its provinces, and reduced to its old island status, will depend on the ability with which the empire is governed as a whole, and the freedom of its governments and its officials from complicity in private financial interests and from the passions of the newspaper correspondents who describe our enemies as beasts. And as there is no evidence so far, that the House of Parliament, as at present manned, fulfill these conditions, or that the press is disposed to criticize them for not fulfilling them, the present probabilities point not to English success on the great international plane of modern politics, but to disruption of the empire from within, by declarations of independence from disgusted and exasperated colonists, and as to these islands, to a chronic militarist panic of foreign invasion mitigated only by the hope that the other powers may be as ignorantly and lazily governed as we are, and that in the last extremity perhaps America would come to our rescue. The recent vogue of militarism, which flourishes only in terrified nations, and the prevalence of bluster of the who's afraid, kind in the press, are seriously disquieting social symptoms. Though it remains to be proved by a general election how far they have affected the nerves of the electorate, no election, unfortunately, can be very reassuring under the existing circumstances. The nation makes no serious attempt to democratize its government because its masses are still in so deplorable a condition that democracy, in the popular sense of government by the masses, is clearly contrary to common sense. Our only aristocracy is a hereditary aristocracy, which is an absurdity in modern society, where distinctions of caste are completely broken down by money. The hereditary aristocracy can stand in the way of a genuine aristocracy of capacity, but it is unable to defend its post against the hustling of ambitious and successful representatives of commerce. The result is that our constitution, whatever it may be nominally, is in fact a plutocracy. The central government is in the hands of two official cliques, equally bankrupt in modern political science, supported in Parliament by the votes of a number of gentlemen who, having no political ideas, though plenty of commercial ones, have bought their seats as much as they have bought their horses and their private houses, 
Almost all of them have been enabled to affect this purchase by personal and class interests, which are coming more and more into direct competitive conflict with the interests of English citizenship, as represented by the new local authorities. Most of them depend on the votes of the working class, whose part in the political history of the last ten years has been a steady policy of maintaining a rich class for the sake of getting employment from it, either directly or through the huge class of shopkeepers who regard rich customers as their natural prey. Our concern in this manifesto is not specially for the wage-earning class, which is taking its own course and reaping only what it has sown, but for the effective social organization of the whole empire and its rescue from the strife of classes and private interests. Foreign Trade the first step to be taken abroad, and one without our trade, can never pass through the doors our armies have battered down and kept open for cleverer races, the Jews, and better organized nations, the Germans, is a reorganization of our consular service. We have an imperial institute at South Kensington where it is not the slightest use, except perhaps as a towering monument of an exceptionally silly job. We want an imperial institute at every important port or inland trade center, and at every likely-to-be-important port or center with which we trade. At that imperial institute, the British trader should find ready for him an exchange for the exhibition of samples of his products, a staff of responsible interpreters, and a consulate of experienced men, not wasting their time in writing reports for home which few people read and nobody attends to but making in their business as experts to catch and advise the British trader until he, too, becomes an expert. Also to see that the speculator in damaged cargoes and adulterated goods shall do his cheating outside the Institute with interpreters and agents picked up at the street corner, so that the British Commonwealth shall not be discredited by them, and the native buyers shall learn that our old familiar friend, the independent Briton, who scorns grandmotherly government and will not be interfered with by Jacks in office, is probably the same reason for objecting to the consul as a pickpocket has for objecting to a magistrate. The consulate could itself act as a broker, if necessary, and have a revenue from commissions, of which, however, the salaries of its officials should be strictly independent. When the time comes for our foreign trade to outgrow private enterprise and be carried on by an industrial British fleet instead of by lines of commercial privateers, such a developed consulate will furnish the administrative machinery for the change. In the meantime, a reorganized consulate can do us good service incidentally by representing the interests of the Commonwealth as against the private financial interests of the rings into whose hands our foreign trade at present tends to fall. These rings have an appalling power of dragging us into wars by the simple process of attending to their business whilst we are neglecting ours. In doing so, they are only doing their duty to their shareholders. If our governments neglect their duty to their shareholders, that is, to the citizens of the Commonwealth, it is idle to blame capitalism for the results. Nonetheless, is it true that a ring can get at the press, not because the press is corrupt, but because it is ignorant? The press can get at the government for exactly the same reason. 
Nobody supposes, for instance, that a trading ring and its financiers can walk into the Times office and pay the editor and his staff a round sum of money for working up a few common grievances into a war fever. But the Times will do it without being paid, from pure ignorance and insular pugnacity. And our ministers, taking their information and their ideas from the Times and the papers of which the Times is a type, will send out armed expeditions under the impression that they are defending the empire and glorifying the flag, when they are, as everyone behind the scenes can see, being used by speculators as a ferret is used by a poacher. This danger will beset us until we have in every foreign market an organ of commercially disinterested industrial intelligence. A developed consulate would be such an organ, and until we have it, private interests will be able to make wars at our expense and with our armies, by simply prompting the pugnacity which distinguishes us. This pugnacity is not, as we are apt to imagine, an effect of our courage. The plain truth is that as we are a nation of civilians, exempt from compulsory military service, with no home experience of the horrors of war, and very rich into the bargain, war means nothing to us but romantic accounts in the newspapers of what is happening abroad, ending in a few pence more on the income tax. If war meant to us the bombardment of English towns and the laying waste of English counties, all the millionaires in Europe would not be able to persuade us to risk a skirmish to remedy a grievance at the Antipodes. Any person who thinks this application of socialism to foreign trade through the consular system impossible also thinks the survival of his country in the age of the powers impossible. No German thinks it impossible. If he has not already achieved it, he intends to. And if the German can do in social organization what the Englishman cannot do, the most patriotic course for our chambers of commerce will finally be to beg the German emperor to annex the British Isles after our armies have cleared the way for Germans in Asia, Africa, and wherever else the markets were fortified against them. American traders already sell their exports in the Far East by a joint permanent exhibition in Tokyo. As to the Russians, the opening of the Siberian Railway has revealed exploits of industrial diplomacy on their part, which fill English travelers with a dismayed sense of our wasted opportunities. We have plenty of administrative machinery to begin with. First, the commercial attaches of the diplomatic corps, who have done good service in Berlin and Paris. Second, the consular service. Third, the Colonial Office, an organization capable, as Mr. Chamberlain well knows, of enormous development. Nothing is more depressing than to compare the use we make of them all with the use we might make of them if only we would take our public business seriously. An easier, weaker, lazier, and hopelessly ineffectual way to deal with foreign competition is to impose duties on imports. This course is suggested, naturally enough, by the people who would make money by it at the expense of the rest of the consumer. Its adoption would stamp us as a flock of political gulls. But when once the feeling that something must be done seizes us, we will be gulled sooner than do nothing. Mere old-fashioned free trade talk will have no effect on a generation which has not been educated in Manchester economics. Nothing but a positive alternative policy will save us from floundering into reaction. And there is no practicable alternative except bringing into power the information and the organization of the empire to the help of the enterprise of the individual trader. 
We allowed the McKinley tariff to cause great distress in South Wales for some years by bringing a flourishing industry, the tin plate, to a standstill for want of new markets to which a properly organized consulate could have guided it. Our notion of encouraging industry at that time was to compel importers to mark their goods with the country of origin. As a result, articles marked Made in Germany now take the same precedence in our retail shops as hallmarked silver. Imperial Policy The best chance for khaki at this election is not its own popularity, but the absence of any alternative. The opposition front bench, having no ideas and no program, any more than the government, will fall back on recrimination about irrevocable bygones in South Africa instead of accepting the situation which has been created, rightly or wrongly, and facing it. Whether the electorate shares President Kruger's political ideas, or believes them to be as obsolete as his theology, it probably suspects that if the government had been as earnest in its efforts to stave off war, as in its efforts to stave off old-age pensions, there would have been no war. But the electorate does not believe, and has not the slightest reason to believe, that if the opposition had been in power, it would have built a whit less capitalist-ridden than the government. All governments are capitalist-ridden and will continue to be so until socialism builds up the British state into something worthy of a sacrifice of private commercial interests by public men. Consequently, if the liberal pot tries to get into power by calling the conservative kettle black, it will fail. For if the choice is to be between parties instead of between programs, the Conservative Party is greatly to be preferred, since it can get larger measures of reform to the House of Lords than the Liberal Party can. And the most active reformers have reason to prefer the affable frankness of the Conservative Minister, who laughs at his own ignorance and is willing to be coached through his bills, to the unteachable Liberal, who feels bound by the Cobdenite tradition to affect the doctrinaire in political science and economics without genuine knowledge of either. What is needed now is a definite constitutional policy to be pursued by the empire towards its provinces. The real danger against which such a policy must be directed is not the danger of attack on the empire from without, but of mismanagement and disruption from within. The British Empire, wisely governed, is invincible. The British Empire handled as we handled Ireland and the American colonies and as we may handle South Africa, if we are not careful, will fall to pieces without the firing of a foreign shot. The primary conditions of imperial stability are not the same throughout the empire. The democratic institutions that mean freedom in Australasia and Canada would mean slavery in India and the Sudan. We are no longer a commonwealth of white men and baptized Christians. The vast majority of our fellow subjects are black, brown, or yellow, and their creed is Mohammedan, Buddhist, or Hindu. We forbid the sale of the Bible in Khartoum and punish British subjects in India for blasphemy against Vishnu. We rule these vast areas and populations by a bureaucracy as undemocratic as that of Russia. And if we substituted for that bureaucracy local self-government by the white traders, we should get black slavery and in some places frank black extermination as we have had in the black blocks of Australia. As for parliamentary institutions for native races, that dream has been disposed of by the American experiments after the Civil War. 
They are as useless to them as a dynamo to a Caribbean. We have thus two imperial policies. A democratic policy for provinces in which the white colonists are in a large majority and a bureaucratic policy where the majority consists of colored natives. Consequently, the empire cannot be governed either on liberal or conservative, democratic or aristocratic principles exclusively, and cannot be governed on Church of England or nonconformist principles at all. An imperial issue between these parties and creeds is necessarily a false issue. So far, the broad divisions seem simple and well-marked. But it happens that in two provinces of the empire which have just been visited by the most terrible of calamities, war, plague, and famine, neither method of government can be applied in its integrity. India Take the case of India, famine-stricken and plague-stricken. At present, we govern India despotically and bureaucratically, treating the native as a child who must be governed for his own good. This is the kind of government that really deserves the epithet grandmotherly. Unfortunately, it has hitherto been criticized in our parliament on homemade principles, the remedy proposed being to confer a parliamentary constitution on the native population. Without raising the question whether Indian subtlety understands parliamentary institutions too well or does not understand them at all, it is certain that they are, for many reasons, impracticable in India. But that is no reason for placing thousands of miles between the capable, educated Indian and the examinations for the Indian civil service and maintaining it so as to provide lucrative posts for Englishmen whose pensions add cruelly to the drain of rupees from a very poor country to a very rich one. Note, the question of the worthlessness of our present examination as a test for Indian capacity is dealt with further on under the heading of education. For India, therefore, we need, one, an extension of the opportunities of Western secondary education for natives capable of it, two, a considerable further Indianization of the higher grades of the civil service, three, multiplication of the provincial councils with limited powers under the guidance of the British Raj, four, a wise development of the germs of self-government existent in the village councils. These, however, are merely reforms of political machinery. With the really horrible responsibility of the famines upon us, we cannot be satisfied with the official optimism which is content with the demonstration that India would be worse off without our administration. The same kind of optimism, leaning on idle literary contrasts of the 19th century with the Dark Ages, shielded the degradation of our manufacturing and mining population by the Industrial Revolution in England and held back factory legislation for half a century. To tell us that there is no village problem in India, that there is no manufacturing district problem in India, that there is no excessive taxation in India, that village communism has decayed through its own rottenness and not through Anglo-Indian ignorance of its nature and value, that the financial transactions between Great Britain and India are perfectly equitable, that, in short, the famines, the conditions of labor in the ginning mills, the poverty and hopelessness are the act of God, mitigable only by the vigilance of Lord George Hamilton is to tax our patience too far. 
Such official apologetics can reassure no sensible citizen until we obtain some reasonably credible information through a. An investigation of the social causes of Indian famines as distinct from the meteorological causes. b. An investigation of the way in which the Industrial Revolution now proceeding is affecting the standard of life of the natives. Can it be doubted that the conclusions from such investigations would create an Indian industrial program and add considerably to the Indian political program? Does anyone pretend that we already have the information such investigations would supply, or that our ignorance is doing India no harm? In the meantime, a more sympathetic attitude towards the aspirations, if not towards the precise program of the Indian Congress, and a more courageous toleration of the native press may safely be recommended. These changes cannot be brought about until we cease to sympathize with the strong caste feeling of the European, both official and merchant, that it exists and that it has influenced for the worse the conduct of some of the Western powers towards Japan and the Chinese crisis is plain enough. Now an Indian is a man, and to be treated as half-devil, half-child, is intolerable to every man, white or brown. Yet, this attitude on the part of the ruling white aristocracy of India daily finds expression in unconscious contumely and sometimes in acts which are open outrages. The Indians live in an atmosphere of conquest, and to fight against an atmosphere is a task of such infinite difficulty that it makes them despair of all the constitutional efforts to emancipate themselves. It is important that Indian reforms should be taken in hand promptly, if only because of their importance as imperial experiments. For we shall find in Africa, as well as in Asia, that the races we have to govern no more consist exclusively of ignorant and helpless tribesmen, capable of nothing but pure tutelage, that our own population consists exclusively of ignorant and helpless agricultural laborers, and if we persist in the lazy policy of treating them like children and deducing their submission as a proof that they are incapable of a share in government, until they rebel, meanwhile training regiments of them, be it remembered in the use of modern weapons, then, after a long period of ill will, during which they will be a menace to the empire instead of a buttress, they will rebel. And the rebellion will prove our incapacity for governing, not theirs for being governed. In fact, our first duty to our subjects is to make them as independent of our guidance and consequently as appreciative of our partnership as possible. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.